just this last week, uh, Amy and I had the, is it an opportunity? It was an opportunity uh, to go to uh, Kent, which is where my mother's family are from. And we went there to actually to attend my grandmother's funeral. Her name was Eunice, but we in the family knew her as Diggy, which uh, is another story for another time. Don't you love family nicknames? Just in the midst of this, we were just sort of using these names that no sane person would ever use. It turns out my grandfather, who was long dead, used to call me Mr. Capucci. So I'm just going to encourage the use of that name in reference to me in this place. Anyway, uh, Diggy, my grandma, died in the last month in a care home, and she had lived a long and beautiful life. Uh, Like every one of us, she'd known difficulty, hardship. She'd known tragedy uh, in her life. She knew her share of sorrow, but she'd also lived with incredible joy, and she contributed so much to all of our lives, and so we were uh, there really to, to, to mourn, but also to celebrate. And uh, in the midst of, of this celebration of this person who loved God and loved her family and so many others, as, as we saw, as I saw, which is a new thing for me, as I saw her body uh, lowered into the ground, I was just deeply struck by the profound beauty of a life lived unto God. And the significance of a death in the Lord. And one of the gifts of the family funeral, if, if you've experienced this, and I've been, uh, some other folks, obviously in my role as a vicar, seen other people doing this at family funerals. We get to actually celebrate and stories come out, don't they? You know, stories uh, that maybe you've never heard before. And even as a grandson, I was hearing stories about Diggy that I'd never heard before. In fact, my mum told one story in her sort of eulogy uh, that she, uh, not long before lockdown, she'd asked Diggy if she had a particular memory of her youth. And, and in the midst of this, my grand said that, yeah, she remembered her and her twin sister. And well, They left school. They were forced to leave school at 15 because of the Second World War. And she learned that, uh, my mum learned that in, in fairly short order, Diggy and her sister, twin sister, learned shorthand. So they could be involved in the war effort, and they learned shorthand and typing, and they both went to work in London for different government ministries as 15-year-olds. And she was recalling the daily journey into London in the midst of the Blitz, and she would catch a bus, and then she would catch a tube. They were day's work, and as a 15-year-old, she recalled how much relief she felt. At the end of the day, when she got onto that bus and was headed out of London to North London where she lived, she said this without any complaint, without any measure of self-pity. It was just what you did. Risk, if you like, was just part of life. It was part of being a part of a bigger community and playing some part in the world around her. And all of this got me thinking this week about risk and how differently we can think about risk today. Another story uh, my mum told me recently was a mutual friend of ours who was sort of a self-appointed litter picker. And this friend of mine, along with some friends in their part of this country, began to recognize an issue with people dropping litter, failing to take responsibility. I mean, if there's anything which drives me mad, it is 
uh, people dropping litter. I mean, I'm even feeling the rage rising. I'm just going to push it back. Uh, remember Jesus, remember Jesus, remember Jesus. Uh, and this person just took responsibility along with some people, and they just began this little litter-picking cohort. And they contacted, after a while, the local council just to say, look, we wanted you to know we're doing this, and we wondered if you were planning to come alongside this, could you offer any education? Could you offer any support or resource for us? Or could you begin to teach people that, you know, not to drop litter? The reply from the council said that they didn't particularly have any plans to assist, but that now that they'd been informed, there would have to be a full risk assessment take place. And all my friends' team would have to wear full PPE. And the upshot, of course, of this is that my friend threw his hands up and the group disbanded. We've never been more aware of risk, have we? These days, you can't do much without consulting your health and safety manual, filling in a risk assessment, consulting legislation. And there is a huge amount that's positive about this. Those of you that love, love this stuff, just... Hear that last sentence. There is a huge amount that's positive about this. Which of us wants to get, get injured at work? No one. I've got friends of mine who've been seriously injured at work. It's not fun. This is the reason that this stuff exists. But I do wonder whether we have seen the creep of a culture of risk aversity. Averse. We are now risk averse. Let me just go there. I'm struggling to find the word. And what I want to say today is that I don't think that's a good look when it comes to the church. I don't think that's a good look when it comes to how we conceive of a life of faith. I want to suggest this isn't a mindset we do well to bring into our discipleship, into our faith in Jesus. John Wimber some of you know that name, who was the, the father of the Vineyard Movement, whose ministry had profound impact on this nation, on the churches in this nation. And partly, honestly, his ministry and his wife's ministry and, and the Vineyard Ministry, it's the reason that we as a church are here today. Not the only reason, but one of the reasons. We honor Vineyard. We honor Trent Vineyard. We honor the Vineyard Movement in this place. It's a stunning, stunning movement. We're so grateful for John and Debbie, for their pioneering faith, and for the life of the Vineyard Movement across the world. Anyway, Wimber used to say, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Faith is spelled risk. And what he meant was that the faith of any disciple is not evidenced by a sort of body of knowledge, as Mark was just telling us, not by a body of knowledge that we store in our minds and we can deliver whenever we're asked. It's not even, dare I say it, by our knowledge of Scripture. It's not sort of a, something we pull out in emergencies. If you like, a, a holy risk assessment we can quote at will. Faith is a life instead of adventurous obedience to a God who is alive and who has demands on us that none of us really have fully conceived of. And if we had, we probably wouldn't have got into this in the first place. A God who is a risk-taking God. And we've been in a series in Daniel over the last while. I advertised at the beginning that the series would begin and we knew not when it would end. We are now believing in faith uh, that it will come to an end at the end of this month. So we have three sermons left on Daniel, this one included. And what we've been saying is that by understanding the paradigm of exile, this idea of living, trying to create home away from home, if you like, 
That we as the church can actually learn a tremendous amount about what it means to live as disciples in these days. And this week I want to look at what Daniel and his friends, particularly Daniel actually in chapter 6, can teach us about risk and adventure in the life of faith. And what we read is in the text that Lauren has read to us already in verse 3, this is, well, let me start from verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over his kingdom 120 satraps stationed throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, including Daniel. What we see here and what we've seen through the text is that Daniel, whatever he does, turns to favor. He is uniquely favored, and I won't get into that again because we've had a good uh, I've had a good preach about that, but that favor is on Daniel's life, and every measure of favor leads to greater opposition, which, when God vindicates Daniel, uh, releases more favor. And at this point, Daniel is one of the top three figures, governmental figures, if you like, in the nation. And he and his friends have faced significant opposition, and, and now this promotion has been the result. And, and by the way, I'm not here today to make a spiritual law of that. It is true that God works in the midst of favor, that opposition, that favor releases opposition, and then God increases favor upon us. But I'm not saying that necessarily if we follow Jesus, we're going to end up in positions of mighty influence. But yet that is what we see happening with Daniel. There is something unique about him. Something that stands out, it, it's like the aroma of uh, God is upon him. As Christians would say, the aroma of Christ is evident there. But a battle is ensuing, a battle is taking place, a battle for worship. And Daniel and his friends are at the heart of it because they're meeting and ministering to the heart of God. And the opposition comes from those around who become jealous. And they come up with a, a plan, it says, so the presidents and the satraps tried to find grounds for complaint against Daniel in connection with the kingdom. But they could not find any grounds for complaint or any corruption because he was faithful. And no negligence or corruption could be found in him. The men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Such is the purity and integrity of Daniel's witness for, for God in these days that those opposing him have to resort to dirty tricks. They can't get him on the basis of something he's done, so they have to rewrite the rules, literally rewrite the rules, and they trick the king who likes Daniel into taking him down. Yeah, so many times that I've been reading Daniel, I've been thinking of the story of Joseph. Favor on Joseph, who is in his own exile in Egypt, isn't he? Favor on him, and, and it's, it's Potiphar's wife in the end that in order to sort of cripple Joseph has to resort to this kind of dirty trick. And again, with Joseph, we see the favor is for the benefit of others. We've talked about that, and leads to vindication. New laws are created. You might say a hate crime. To make worship a hate crime. And the law is, is that anyone who prays and worships anyone other than the king would be punished with the lion's den. Now that's a, a horrific situation to be in. I'll, ref, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to this, but there are people, Christians, in the world today for whom that's normal. Normal today. 
And we don't, we don't live, let's not pretend. We live, I'm trying to frame this as exile. We live in exile to a degree at the moment. But we, let's not pretend that's our reality. But it was Daniel's reality. It is the reality of much of the church today. We could do with becoming more aware of the realities of Christians in exile. But what I want to look at today is Daniel's response again. It's, it's a bit like Daniel 1.8 where Daniel resolved not to eat the food from the king's table. This response to what uh, happens around him is equally potent. Here's what we read. Verse 10. Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed and he knows this law's been enacted, he continued to go to his house, which had windows or windows, if you're from this part of the world, in its upper room, open toward Jerusalem, and to get down on his knees three times a day and to pray to his God and praise him, just as he had done previously. Daniel knows the threat. Daniel knows the legislation. And here's how it impacts his behavior, his worship. Absolutely not at all. I mean, I could be reading into this, but I love how the text brings out this idea of not only does Daniel continue to pray, continue to worship in exactly the same pattern, you know, reading a psalm in the morning, saying the Lord's Prayer at lunch and the examine in the evening. Not only does Daniel continue in his threefold devotion to God, but he even does it by the open window. It's as if he's saying, I'm not going to hide. It's an extraordinary perspective. Daniel's instinct isn't to ask the question, is it safe? It's a bit risky, isn't it? Maybe I should withdraw just for a period. Instead, Daniel says, is this what God is asking of me? He frames his, uh, and I know I'm reading back now, but he frames his discipleship, if you like, his life of following God. He frames it around obedience, not safety. What does God require is his paradigm. And what enables him to do this, I think, is the fact that he's already developed a pattern of thinking in which he's already been excluded. He's not trying to fit in. He's not desperate for the approval of his peers. He understands that he's in exile. And he's not sort of busy bodying himself, ferreting himself around to somehow prove that followers of God can be cool too. You know, Jesus is cool also, and I'm cool. It, there's none of that people-pleasing going on in his life. He's just like... I love God. Take it or leave it. Lion's den or not, I love God. And I'm not going to back down from just this, the truest thing about me, which is I love God and I'm all about his kingdom. I love, I love, I love praying. Oh, three times a day, that's all I've got time. It's not really enough, but it's what I can fit in right now. I've got a busy job. The satrap thing, it's, all-encompassing. Let me put it another way. Daniel would rather die than stop praying. He'd rather die than stop worshipping his God. You know, and it, 
it's so easy for us, again, just to sort of make this a metaphor, isn't it? Like, and we'd rather, you know, we say, and I'm about to say this, by the way, in the sermon. Well, where are we facing death of a sort? How might we want to understand, or we might want to die to our financial control. We might, I'm going to do this in just a minute, but let's just face the reality for a second. Daniel would rather embrace physical death than deny his God. I mean, that's stunning. He's only able to do that because he has a conviction and a connection to the love of God that is greater than his need for the approval of his friends, than his need for his own physical survival. And I, I do wonder, and we know what happens next, don't we? Daniel is, uh, to, to, to break it to you, we've already had the reading, so I don't feel like I'm really letting the cat out of the bag here, but you know, he's delivered in the most stunning and extraordinary way. And if you've been to church, you went to church as a kid, you've seen this. Uh, <laughs> you've, you've, told, you've been told this story. Daniel in the lion's den, he's saved just as his friends were from the furnace. And God is glorified. But I, I just want to say today, this is the message. Could we learn a thing or two from Daniel? What could we learn from Daniel, from his friends, uh, as exiles, about life in exile? What could we learn about what it means to be a disciple in this day and in this age? I, I do, here's my thesis. I do sometimes wonder if we've become too accustomed to our own safety, to our own security, and we've elevated it to a kingdom value. We've made it into something that we can, we can present before God and demand from him. And we say to God, well, it, you, you, it's your job to keep me safe. You're not doing your job if I'm not protected from a death of some kind. And we hold it against him when he doesn't come through for us in the ways that we imagine and we expect. And there he is, surely, if I was God, I'd be saying, well, I didn't make that deal with you in the first place. I said to you very clearly, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. I didn't promise you wouldn't come to harm. I didn't promise that at times in following me, because you follow me, your reputation wouldn't be trashed amongst your friends, even amongst your family. I said I'd be with you. I said that uh, my mercy and my goodness would follow you every day of your life, that you would dwell in my house your whole life long. Let me suggest three ways where I think we, we are at risk in these days in the church of falling foul of this trap. The first does connect with physical safety. I think the last 18 months with the COVID pandemic have been really revealing for many of us. And we can talk about the culture and how, how many of us have had to, many of us who've been distanced from actually ever facing death or the possibility of death, we've had to look our own mortality in the eye in a fresh way. And we look at our culture, and actually we've got to be honest and say, that oh, I think, this is, but my belief is that this has exposed a fairly widespread fear of death. And I actually don't think many of us in the church really, if we're honest, are that different. I think we've all felt that at times, that overwhelming anxiety about death. 
Let us ask ourselves the question, is that, is that a kingdom perspective? Is that an appropriate assessment of a godly attitude? Now, I'm not want to make, I don't want to make uh, light of the realities of what we're seeing in our culture, what we've seen around us. Many of us have lost people. But when I think about Jesus, when I think about the discipleship, when I think about the apostles, when I think about Daniel, I certainly don't see an ambivalence toward those realities, but I see a courage in the face of these realities. Secondly, I think there is a, something around reputational satisfaction. Physical safety. Secondly, reputational satisfaction. There are times, aren't there, when instead of taking a risk of faith, we are tempted on the basis of how things might appear reputationally for us in our career, in our home, in our family, amongst our friends. We're tempted to take a step back when it comes to discipleship, when it comes to being obedient to what God has for us. Because we are, if we're honest, really concerned about the opinion of other people. We want to manage our reputation. Some of us, and I really confess this in my own life, I don't just want to manage my reputation. I want to manage God's reputation. You know, last night, I wasn't planning to share this necessarily, but Amy and I were having a chat with a friend of ours who was in our home, and they were just, not a Christian, just telling us about an issue of physical ailment with their eye. And I knew in that moment I had a choice whether to say, hey, I would love to pray for you. I didn't. I was nervous. I was nervous about how I would look. I was also nervous about what if God doesn't heal. And I didn't do it. I allowed my fear, my unbelief to stand in the way of a moment. Who knows what would have happened? God may have healed him. God may not. But God may have revealed himself in all manner of ways. I said God's no for him. How many of us do that? I'm, I'm not beating you up here. That I, I, I'm, I'm hoping by the Spirit of God to inspire each of us to a life, honestly, which is just free from the concerns of caring what other people bleeding well think. I want to be free of that. I'm on the road. <laughs> it may take a lifetime. Thirdly, what about financial security? Now, if I wasn't touching any nerves in the last point, I'm going to be treading on a few right here. Jesus names the God of mammon. It's the only God he mentions by name. And I think mammon is a description of, uh, in our culture at least, a desire for a little bit of financial security. How much? Here's the definition. Just a little bit more. How much do you want in savings? Just a little more. How much more? A little. A little. And then I'll be expansively and extravagantly generous. You know, gosh, we all do it, don't we? I came to this point a number of years ago where I realized that I had I'd created this completely arbitrary number. And if that was in my bank account, I felt like I wasn't nervous. But if it wasn't, then I'd be checking and I'd be thinking, I'd be wondering and it would check. I mean, goodness me, what is that except worship of money? Let's call it what it is. We're in the church, we can be honest, can't we? 
I see nobody's got their Sunday best on. You know, one story that really touched me was actually, and I'm not supposed to do this, but a story of Amy in her early 20s. She, she was in a job that was really, really well-paying in London, and she was really good at it. That was the difference between Amy and I when, when we met. Amy was good at her job, and I wasn't. And she had this, she was in recruitment, and she, in the midst of this profound time of encounter and life change in her life, really young, God had begun to bless her financially, and she just felt the Lord say, I want you to do this internship at your church. And she just knew clear as day, God spoke to her. I don't know how, she just did. This was before I met her, so I can't even claim any credit. I didn't even have any influence. In fact, I probably would have talked her out of it, which is what most people around her tried to do. Because she went to her, uh, she went to her employers and said, look, I feel God is, how do you have this conversation? I feel God is asking me to do this, and to do it, I'm going to need to be part-time. I need two days a week. In recruitment in London, that's, it's no deal. You can't do that. And so um, she went away and she prayed about it and she received counsel uh, from godly people and every one of them said, don't do it. But God had told her to do it. And so the next week she went in and she had a letter in her hand and she sat down and she said, I need to speak to your boss. And, and he said, look, I know why. She, he sat down in the room and said, I know why you've come. You're going to give me your resignation, aren't you? She said, yeah. Here it is. He said, well, I knew you were going to do that. So I went to speak to our CEO, and he's agreed that even though nobody else has ever been allowed to do this, you can work three days a week and do this internship. Amazing. I'm not saying it's always going to work, like, uh, work out exactly like that. I'm just saying that's the attitude to risk that we're supposed to have as disciples of Jesus. I'm going to bring this into land. What if we've elevated safety, a gift of God? to a value of the kingdom. We've said, Lord, I'll follow you. I'll speak to others about you. But please, not if, dot, dot, dot. I believe we need to reacquaint ourselves again with the God of the Bible, who was the ultimate risk taker. The God who risked himself in creating the heavens and the earth. Risked himself his reputation and everything else in calling Abraham, risked himself in delivering his people, Israel, out of slavery. Moses didn't stand by the the sea with a, a clipboard saying, well, when it's dried out a bit, folks, let's wander across. No, God opened up the seas and led his people through. God risked himself fully and finally in the person of Jesus. And God risks himself every day in putting his reputation at stake. On his church. I dream of a fearless church. I dream of being a fearless disciple. And I'm a ways away, but I'm working on it under the grace of God. And in exile, we are freed from our obsession with safety and success and released into fearless discipleship. This has been my story. That times of faith and where my prayer life has been most alive have been the times when I've opened myself up to taking new risks, to being more adventurous in my faith. And this will be your story too. And the reason that we can have more confidence to risk everything than even Daniel is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Because in and through Jesus, we've been adopted into the family of our Father in heaven, whose declaration has been fully and finally settled over our lives, that we are beloved sons and daughters in whom he is well pleased. And the blood of Christ has been shed on our behalf, and that blood gives us eternal and final communion with Father. Our, the Father. Our sins have been forgiven, and we are freed to live adventurous and creative lives in the presence of Jesus wherever we go. And the Holy Spirit it's been given as a down payment upon us. The presence of God going with us and filling us, the adventurous, life-giving spirit. You know, as disciples of Jesus who are baptized, we live with death behind us. When you were included in Christ in the baptismal waters, whether that happened as a, a baby or as an adult, you died. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. You're dead. Dead man walking. Dead woman walking. And because you've already died, you no longer need fear death. The fear of reputational death. The fear of physical death. The fear of financial death. God is with us. God is for us. Let's pray.